Okay, we'll read from verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. (coughs) According to the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, the word of God is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and also judging between the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I think he has a number of things in mind when he writes those words under the inspiration of the Spirit, but not least, I think he has this understanding that when word and spirit come together, they can speak deeply into our hearts so that we know that God is speaking to us in a profound way. And when that happens, there are moments of challenge. There are also moments of discipleship, moments when we can choose to respond to what God is saying or we can choose not to respond to what he is saying. Peter, in this first letter, offers us a challenge that may literally never have been more important to God's people in the United Kingdom than it is for us today. And the challenge is found in verse 15. (coughs) Excuse me. It simply says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope 
you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. The Greek word for answer is the word apologia. It doesn't mean to make an apology in any way, but it means kind of to make a defence of what you believe, much in the same way as a defence lawyer, or any lawyer in fact, might want to defend their client and create the kind of information that is a defence of what they're trying to say. The scripture tells us very clearly in the passage that we've just read through that we should do it very gently and very carefully. Uh, But lawyers are persuasive. And I think the the sense of this text is that we are called to persuasively, yes lovingly, yes gently, but persuasively be able to give people an answer when they ask the question, what's the hope that is in your life? And in these words, Peter assumes we have a hope. Hope for today, and in the words of the hymn, bright hope for tomorrow. But let's be honest just for a few moments. The world that we live in doesn't inspire much hope, especially now. We think about the Amazon rainforest being consumed and being consumed at an alarming rate and we wonder what it is we human beings have done to this beautiful world that God created. The damage that might be irreparable. Or we may think about the situation on the borders of Turkey and Syria where there has been warfare over the last few days, where even yesterday evening the president of Turkey said, I want to crush the heads of the Kurdish fighters in that region. A friend of the family, in fact a family member, has just returned from Pakistan, and no disrespect to anybody if you're from that country, but he explained to me how most of the major corporations pay little or no tax in that land how the government has no money to help people who are poor or starving or who need education. It's just what he called a basket case economy. And corruption and poverty around the world are terrible twin crimes that seem to be so widespread. And for us today, in our own nation today, we may feel hopeless about our own future relationship with the EU one way or another. And yet the expectation of Scripture... The expectation of Peter, the expectation, I believe, of the heart of God is that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I should live with hope as the bedrock of our faith in him. And so here's the question I find myself asking in these difficult days. Where is my hope really placed in a world which is much more suited to despair? And I think Peter answers that question in two ways at least from this passage I want to look at very quickly. To begin with, Peter roots our hope for today in the historical reality of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18 of our reading tells us, Christ also suffered for our sins. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. And later on he says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Paul declares, Jesus Christ is not dead, he's alive. And for that reason, we have hope in the 21st century. If you've ever heard done or done the Alpha Course, there's a section in which 
Nicky Gumbel, the author, talks about Jesus and he says that there are no serious or very few serious historians who do not believe that Jesus was a real person who lived and who died. The question is not, was Jesus a real person who lived and died? But the real question is, did Jesus rise again from death? Because if he did, friends, we need to remind ourselves of this. If Christ rose from death, it changes everything for everyone in humanity. You see, Christians believe that God is with us every moment of every day. And in an ever-changing and unpredictable world, we also believe in the words of Psalm 73 that after this life comes an end, he will take us to be with him in glory. This hope of eternal life with Christ rests on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It rests on the fact that when he rose from death, he conquered sin and he conquered hell. And he conquered the powers of darkness. And he made a way for sin to be forgiven and us to spend eternity with him. Paul makes this point so powerfully in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he writes, If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless. And in fact, you may think it is. But Paul goes on to say, and so is your faith. <clears throat> our preaching is useless and your faith is pointless if Jesus didn't rise from death. Jesus' followers depend on his resurrection. In the 1930s, a man called Frank Morrison set out to prove once and for all that Jesus never rose from death. He wrote a pamphlet about the death of Jesus, or that was his plan. It was to be called Jesus, the last phase. So he did his research. He read the scriptures he read the secular historians around the Bible. He met with Christians. And after about 18 months or two years, he came to this conclusion. Jesus did rise from death. Therefore, he is the Son of God. You can buy the book. You can see how he learns the arguments he presents for Christ having risen from the, de the dead. The book is called Who Moved the Stone? It's been a bestseller for years. You can get it from Amazon today. In the 1970s, Josh McDowell left law school. <clears throat> he decided, too, that he would examine whether Jesus really did rise from death. And so he did all the research, and some two years later, he also came to this conclusion. Yes, Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. And in that discovery, he dedicated his life, even today, still traveling the world, and declaring to people, apologia, apologetics, a defense, yes, Jesus rose from death. In the 1990s, Lee Strobel, a Chicago news, uh, newspaper journalist, hard-bitten, determined to prove that Jesus didn't rise from death. He was to write a book called The Case Against Christ. And you already know the outcome from what I've told you before. Two years later, born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, Lee Strobel wrote the book The Case for Christ. And he too has dedicated his life to traveling the world to demonstrate and to prove Jesus Christ is not dead, friends. He is alive. Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, a Russian Orthodox bishop, spoke clearly of how he came to faith. As a young man, he hated Christians. And he hated Jesus Christ. So he borrowed the Gospel of Mark from his mother. And he read it to be able to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In his autobiography, he writes these words. <coughs> 
after I'd been reading for a while, I felt there was a presence on the other side of my desk. I could see no one, but the sense of this presence was so strong, and I became aware it was the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ about whom I was reading. And he added this, I made, therefore, the basic discovery of Christianity, that Christ was alive and his presence has stayed with me ever since. Hallelujah! He is not dead. He is risen. And the bishop makes a powerful point. See, I've personally travelled to long, long distances, to places where the presence of God has been made manifest. The Spirit of God has been poured out and it's wonderful when collectively and communally we find ourselves in a place where we all sense the presence of the living God together. But I want to say this to you this morning. It's possible sometimes for us to want God to manifest himself to us in a way that would somehow encourage us on our own terms. We might want God to, to grant us a kind of angelic visitation. For some of us that would just be kind of a clincher. And for others, it might be, you know, wouldn't it be great if tongues of fire appeared as it did on the day of Pentecost? Or we heard the sound of that mighty rushing wind. And some of us, that's how we want God to do things. I want to tell you this this morning. We need to get sensitive to the presence of Christ, whether we feel anything or not. Tomorrow morning, when you drive to work in your car or on the bus, or you ride on your bicycle or you walk, even if there are no spare seats on that bus, you need to know this. Jesus Christ will be with you all day long. And when you get into the workplace tomorrow and there's those difficult people and uh, your boss is awkward and there's people around you who you feel are against you, you will not be alone tomorrow morning because the risen Christ will be with you in your workplace. And when you go from here for lunch, when you go back to your own flat on your own to those four walls, or whether you go with friends, or whether you go out for a meal, wherever you are, whether you set an extra chair at the table or not, the risen Christ will be with you at your mealtime. Because Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and he can keep his promise, because he died, but he rose again. Today, I have hope. You have hope. Not because we're clever or because we're good but because Jesus is alive. Because in the words of 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, because he is alive, the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus rose from death, Paul tells the church in Rome that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Famine can't, trials can't, persecution can't, danger can't, violence can't. Because Jesus is alive, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you have a reason for hope? Do you have a reason for hope in a hopeless feeling world this morning? Yes, I do. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. What's the chorus? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking land. We have full reason to hope because our hope is in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we have reason for hope because Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 15, Peter writes to this struggling church 
and these struggling Christians, and he says to them, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Or in your hearts, set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. When we share our personal hope in a challenging world, we are presenting to people this reality. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one who came full of grace and truth. And I need to say this very gently and lovingly. As I look in the mirror at my own life, and as I look across this congregation of people, many of you I don't really know, if Jesus Christ is Lord, no one else can be. If Jesus Christ is Lord, no one else can be. When Peter wrote this letter, he was writing from Rome, a place that he called Babylon because of its pagan worship and its cruel violence. He was writing to people who'd converted to Christianity, some from Judaism, some from some other pagan faith. And these early Christians were facing persecution, as so many do today around the world. If you follow Open Doors or Barnabas, you, you see the news every week, every few days. Fresh persecution, restrictions on Christians around the world. And these people, their suffering was real and painful. It was suffering that broke families apart. It was suffering that um, restricted their ability in business and commerce. It robbed them of opportunities. Their faith in Jesus put them in opposition with other people. Some of them were wives or servants or slaves. And they lived in households where the master of the house was not a Christian and they were expected to worship the gods chosen by the master of the house. But in their hearts, like Frank Morrison or Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or Anthony Bloom or me or you or millions of other people down through the ages, they had come to understand that Jesus was Lord, not these false gods. And it put them in opposition, even in their home life. But the point Peter wants them to understand is that none of these false gods are real. And in the end, Jesus wins because Jesus Christ is Lord. All of these false gods are imaginations of men and of women. He wants to grasp them to grasp over and over that every false god will one day crumble to nothing. And every person who set themselves up against the face of God on planet Earth will crumble to nothing because God has already won the victory at Calvary through Christ. And today, in this dark and sometimes hopeless feeling world, Jesus Christ is still Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have hope in the 21st century for the same reason that Peter and those in the early church had hope in the first century. If I was to ask you what's the best or most famous verse in the book of Jeremiah, you'd say Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to bless you. Plans to give you a hope and the future. And we rightly pray it over each other. <coughs> we pray blessing over each other. When we're making big choices, we pray that for ourselves and and we pray it for other people. And that's not wrong, but the context is really interesting. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God is saying, I know the plans I have for you. Plans not to harm you, but to bless you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But you are going into exile. 
You're going away from your homeland. You're going away from what you know and love. You're going away into struggle and into challenge. And it could be for around 70 years that you will go into that. But then in verse 14, verse we don't often read, God says this, I will gather you back from the nations where I have banished you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. In other words, there are tough times coming ahead. But you need to know this. I am completely in control. I am in control of the timings. And I am completely in control of the final outcome. I think Peter discovered this when he walked with Jesus. There are moments in the life of Peter when he begins to learn the lesson. In Matthew 16, Jesus begins to explain to him, Peter, I am going to Jerusalem, and there I will be killed, but on the third day I will rise again. And Peter says, no, Lord, this can't happen. We can't allow this. And Jesus says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but mere human concerns. Isn't that easy for us? We work it out from a human perspective. Or I think about Peter in John chapter 13 and verse 6, where Jesus begins to wash his feet. And Peter thinks that he should wash the Lord's feet. But Jesus says these powerful words, and I I want you to take note of them this morning, because I think they're vital for us in our walk with Jesus. Jesus says, What I am doing now you will not understand. But afterwards, you will understand. What I'm doing now, you haven't got a clue what's going on. But afterwards, you'll understand. Because though it looks bad, I am completely in control. I'm in control of the timings. And I'm in control of the outcome. We're going to witness to the truth of our Christian faith. And this beautiful, glorious, majestic, loving, perfect, pure Saviour, Jesus himself. We have to point also to the cross in this dark old world, to the true standard of the love of God towards mankind, to the faithfulness of the Son of God, who was willing to give his life to take the punishment that we should take in order that by faith in him we could go free. That is the reason that we have hope in a dark and often unhopeful world. Our hope is in Christ. Christ who is risen from death. Christ who is Lord. And Christ who died for your sin and for mine. Can you give a reason for the hope that's within you despite living in the world today? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. My hope is in a person. His name is Jesus. He died for my sins and yours. And along with Frank Morrison and Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel and Anthony Bloom, I have discovered that he is not dead, but that he is alive today from death. More than that, I've come to know he is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He knows the end from the beginning. And he is completely in control. In the early 1980s, 
<coughs> Bill McConnell was deputy governor of the notorious Mays Prison in Northern Ireland. And there were attempts on his life and it was a dangerous job to do. And eventually he was shot dead by terrorists in front of his wife and his three-year-old daughter. Three weeks before he was murdered, he had a sense that he was going to die. So he wrote a letter to be read out at his funeral service, a letter to his wife and to his daughter. The last paragraph goes like this. Finally, let no one be alarmed as to my eternal security. In March 1966, I committed my life, my talents, my work and my actions to Almighty God in the sure and certain knowledge that however slight my hold on him had been during my years at school and university and in the prison services, his promises are sure and his hold on me complete. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I tell you what, that is hope in a hopeless world. That is the knowledge that there is a Saviour who is not dead but is alive. That is the knowledge that there is a Saviour who is Lord and all things will work out for his glory and blessing in the end. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning. He's not dead, he's risen. And he's not hopeless, he is Lord. This is our Saviour. Shall we pray together this morning? Maybe people here this morning and you're a Christian, but somehow life has been tough and you've taken your eyes just off those two facts. He's risen and he is Lord, just in the quietness this morning. Why don't you reaffirm that? Even if it doesn't feel like it, right now Christ is with you. The presence of God is with you. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Test him. He's with you. He's a wonderful saviour. Pure and loving and kind and gentle and gracious. Self-sacrificial. He's a wonderful saviour. It may be this morning that you've never really known that it was possible to have all your sins forgiven through faith in the Son of God, the Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's why he came and died. He died on the cross for me and for you. On the cross, stretched out, he paid the penalty for my sin and for yours. He bore the punishment in his body that I should have taken so that by faith in him, I can go free and be assured of sins forgiven peace with God and life eternal. But listen, he's Lord. He's not an add-on to everyday life. Jesus Christ needs to become your Lord. I wonder if you need a saviour this morning who wants to be your Lord. If this morning you know you need to be sure of God's forgiveness, if you want to accept Jesus as your saviour, someone who saves you from your sin, but also as your Lord, someone who will be captain of your life from this day forward. I'd love to just pray for you. I won't embarrass you, but I'd like you to do something. For I'd like you just to put up your hand very quickly, and our ushers will bring you a booklet with something to fill in on the back. We'd love you to fill that in so that we can write you one letter. We will not hassle you. We won't call at the house if you don't want us to. We won't phone you if you don't want us to, but we would love to write to you.
But if that's you this morning, you know you need sins forgiven. You know you need peace with God. You know you need a saviour. But you also need a Lord right where you are. Thank you very much. Just lift up your hand right now. Thank you. And we'll come and place a booklet in there. Thank you very much. Is there anybody else? You need a saviour. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just one more time then. If you know that you need your sins forgiven and peace with this wonderful God, this lovely God, this beautiful Jesus, this gracious, saving King of Kings, just where you are now, slip up your hand and we'll come and give you a booklet and we will write to you. Okay, in the back of that booklet, I think, there's a little piece for your name and address. I promise you we won't hound you, but we would love to write to you. Invite you to some of the courses that we come. Just encourage you on your walk with Jesus. If you fill that card in, you can join the Alpha course next Sunday, 11.15, in the room across the corridor. Just go straight there, introduce yourself, and, and learn something about Jesus. We'd love to have you in. See, it's not about church, it's not about us. But it is about Jesus. He's not dead. And he is Lord. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we thank you for the privilege of calling you Father this morning. We are not cosmic orphans, drifting on a planet, uncertain of whether God cares for us or not. We are not exposed to fate, but we find ourselves loved by the creator of the heavens and the earth and invited into his family. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you gave your only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you took the punishment for our sins, that through faith in your death and resurrection, our sins are forgiven and we have peace forever with a holy God. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do in our hearts and our lives. One God, three persons, we bless you today. We remember every person in this room who has raised their hand or chosen in their hearts to accept you as Lord and Saviour. In the same way as those we've mentioned this morning, especially Anthony Bloom, may they know the presence of the living God in their lives from this day forward. May they know their sins have been forgiven. May they receive Jesus Christ as Saviour and as Lord. Bless them, Lord, and continue your work in their hearts and their lives. We ask this for the glory and honour of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.